0: This is a production of W.E.D.U. PBS, Tampa, St. Petersburg, Sarasota.
1: NEXT ON W.E.D.U., DONALD TRUMP FACES NEW FELONY CHARGES OVER THE JANUARY 6TH ASSAULT ON THE CAPITOL. WHAT DOES IT MEAN FOR GOVERNOR RON DESANTIS' PRESIDENTIAL AMBITIONS? THE CONTROVERSY OVER FLORIDA'S NEW BLACK HISTORY TEACHING STANDARDS DRAWS MORE COMMENT FROM THE VICE PRESIDENT And Hillsborough County might make major changes to the way county commissioners are elected. All this and more right now on Florida This Week. Welcome back. Joining us on the panel this week, William March is an independent journalist and a columnist for the Tampa Bay Times. Jeff Brandis is the president of the Florida Policy Project, a former state senator and a Republican. Darrell Rahsaan is a state senator from Pinellas and Hillsborough counties and a Democrat. David Ponton is an assistant professor and undergrad director at the School of Interdisciplinary Global Studies at the University of South Florida. And Catherine Varn is a Tampa Bay reporter for Axios. Nice to have all of you here. Good to see you. you. Nice to be here. Well, for the third time this year, former President Donald Trump was arraigned on felony charges, this time in the District of Columbia on Thursday. He pleaded not guilty to several felony charges related to trying to overturn the results of the 2020 election. The 45-page indictment from Special Counsel Jack Smith accuses Trump of a conspiracy against the right to vote and to have one's vote counted in violation of Section 241 of Title 18 of the U.S. Code. As The Washington Post reports, the alleged offense under Section 241 is among four counts included in the indictment, which argue that Trump, along with six unnamed co-conspirators, eroded trust in the administration of the election and pursued unlawful means of discounting legitimate votes and subverting the election results. Those means, according to the indictment, included strong-arming state officials to change electoral votes won by Joe Biden, and recruiting fraudulent electors in swing states prepared to override the will of the voters. The alleged conspiracy included using the authority of the Justice Department to create doubt about the election results and encourage the presentation of those illegitimate electors as alternatives to Biden's valid electors. And according to the indictment, it involved pressuring Vice President Mike Pence to delay or thwart the certification of Biden's victory on January 6, 2021, and capitalizing on the violence unleashed that day to levy false claims of election fraud and convince members of Congress to further delay the certification based on those claims. Steve Chong, a spokesperson for the former president, cast the indictment as an attempt to interfere in the next presidential election, saying why did they wait two and a half years to bring these fake charges right in the middle of President Trump's winning campaign for 2024. Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis, said this about the indictment.
2: The reality is uh, a Republican, a D.C. jury, would indict a ham sandwich and convict a ham sandwich if it was a Republican ham sandwich. I think uh, Americans need to be able to remove cases out of D.C. I think the juries are stacked. I think that they're going to want to convict people that they disagree with or at a minimum, you should be able to draw a jury pool from across the entire country. Trump's
1: attorney, John Lauro of Tampa, said the indictment was an attack on Trump's right to free speech. It attacks his ability to advocate for a political position, which is covered under the First Amendment. So what we saw after the 2020 election were a number of discrepancies affidavits, sworn testimony from around the country as to irregularities in the election process. We also saw instances where in the middle of an election cycle, the rules changed without uh, the state legislatures weighing in. So under those circumstances, President Trump was entitled to advocate for a position. Trump's own attorney general testified to the January 6th commission that there was no truth to the claim that there was fraud during the 2020 election. I had three discussions with the president that I can recall. One was on November 23rd, one was on December 1st, and one was on December 14th. And I've been through sort of the give and take of those discussions, and in that context I made it clear I did not agree with the idea of saying the election was stolen and putting out this stuff, which I told the president was bullshit. I observed, uh, I think it was on December 1st, that, you know, how can we, you can't live in a world where, where the incumbent administration stays in power based on its view, unsupported by specific evidence, that the election, that there was fraud in the election. And this week, Barr said this. I have come to believe that he uh, w- knew well that
0: he had lost the election.
1: Trump's vice president, Mike Pence, said this week that he had no legal right to follow the president's request to overturn the election results. And then on that day, President Trump asked me to put him over the Constitution. But I chose the Constitution, and I always will. I I I really do believe that uh, anyone who puts themselves over the Constitution should never be president of the United States. So Jeff, let's talk about the Florida politics of this. Does uh, the Governor DeSantis' presidential campaign, is it affected at all either way? by the Trump indictment?
3: I really don't think it is. I mean, I think the Trump supporters are gonna see this as a witch hunt. I think Republicans generally uh, kind of see this as just adding on. This is what three or four other indictments now going on that have all occurred in the last uh, you know six months. And, and so I don't think that this tra- changes really the trajectory at all.
1: Mm-hmm. Catherine, how about you? Do you think it changes uh, DeSantis's trajectory?
4: Uh, no, I, I pretty, I pretty much agree with Jeff. I mean, he's been indicted twice already, and it hasn't really made much of a difference in the polls. And uh, you know, Desantis has been trying to uh, connect with with uh, with Trump voters and and you know, get them on his side, and it just hasn't really had much traction. So I, I don't think there's a lot of reason to believe that this is going to be. Uh, his linchpin. I'm I'm not
0: worried about the effect on a DeSantis candidacy or on the candidacy of any other person running for president. What I'm worried about is the effect on the nation, the effect on the health of the electoral process, the effect on people and undermining government. Uh, What we should be concerned about is the rule of law.
1: So, Daryl, do you think that if if the shoe were on the other foot And a Democratic president had done what President Trump uh, did and allegedly did. How do you think uh, the country would respond, and especially how do you think Republicans would respond? The
0: same way. The same way. You mean... They would seek to indict, they would seek to punish and prosecute, and it wouldn't be any different.
2: All right. Uh, Dave, what do you think about uh, the... Yeah, I think to the senator's point about this being about the rule of law, just a few weeks ago, uh, Ron DeSantis uh, answered a question from a student in Vermont about how he felt about January 6th and the idea that the peaceful transfer of power is foundational to American democracy, and the governor just kind of threw the ball away. It was an opportunity, I think, for him to go on the offensive Um, to to chart a different path for his campaign so in addition to failing to be offensive he's also going to be on the defense his top competition is Donald Trump but he also has to look behind his back at people like Chris Christie who are going to be calling out the governor's record in the state of Florida who's going to be talking about climate change going to be talking about the the home insurance crisis going to be talking about the six-week abortion ban I think he's setting himself up to be in a position where he's operating from weakness.
1: And, and, uh, Wendy, the the Governor DeSantis has been pretty supportive, I think, of of President Trump. He's sometimes called Trump without the baggage, but he hasn't really separated himself from Trump's behavior on January 6th.
5: Well, I I would disagree a little bit with some of the things that have been said. I think this creates an even greater problem for DeSantis. Uh, The the joke is that DeSantis' supporters are frantically looking around for something to get him indicted for so he can get some attention. What this does (laughs) is... um, It makes the race more and more about Donald Trump, less and less about anybody else. It could turn the race into a referendum on whether Trump should go to jail. I can see the candidates being asked, will you or will you not pardon Donald Trump? Um, And one problem for DeSantis is it puts pressure on him, in effect, to defend his opponent, to defend Donald Trump. Uh, And he's been reluctant to do that, but he's also extremely reluctant to attack him, which is what I think David was talking about a minute ago. Instead, you have him making snide little passive-aggressive comments like, I don't know anything about January 6th. I wasn't in Washington on January 6th, and I don't know anything about making payoffs to porn stars, so I can't comment on that. Um, And the same thing a minute ago, where he blamed the whole situation on Washington juries, for heaven's sake. Uh, I, I just think it puts... It takes a lot of the oxygen away from DeSantis, puts him in a very difficult position as to, to how to move, how to get attention.
1: Hmm. And, Jeff, does this strengthen President Trump's position in the Republican field?
3: Well, I think it definitely um, increases the media attention placed on Donald Trump, and I think definitely uh, I, I agree with William. I think it, I think DeSantis is going to have to thread a very fine needle to, uh, to be able to, to kind of maneuver his conversations through, through what's going to happen here.
1: I want to get your comments about this uh, next soundbite. And Catherine, I want to start with you. Ron DeSantis seemed to threaten violence against uh, government employees this week. Let's
2: play the soundbite. And then on bureaucracy, um, you know, we're going to have all these deep state people, you know, we're going to start slitting throats on day one um, and be ready to go. So, Catherine,
1: the governor seemed to say that he was going to slit the throats of government employees who are part of the bureaucracy in Washington, D.C. What do you, I mean, that's a pretty strong statement. What, what do you make of that?
4: I mean, I think he's trying to look tough and, uh, you know, sort of get at that drain the swamp type of mentality. Uh, but yeah, I mean it hasn't played super well uh, pretty pretty violent language. Um, I also think it's interesting thinking about kind of the state of Florida right now uh, and a lot of staff positions in state government ha- are open and have remained open uh, during uh, uh, Governor DeSantis's time uh, in office and so it's just interesting to look at that you know look at how he's run his state compared to now what he's saying he'll do. Uh, you know, with with federal staffers, if you were to be president.
1: Darrell, it seems like a line has been crossed. Most politicians, at least in the modern era, don't use that kind of language, they slitting don't.
0: the throats. And he's trying to project strength, but he projects violence, and I think it backfires
2: on it.
1: David, what do you think of that? Uh,
2: I think it's a remarkable statement, uh, especially for someone who is going to have to defend his record here in the state. Uh, I think it's also uh, a a kind of wild thing to say at a moment when we're talking about the integrity of democracy itself. And he's taken such a hard line in Florida with his electoral police. We've seen it happen here in Tampa uh, with people being arrested for voting illegally, despite that they were told they had the right to do so. Um, It just, it, it, it smacks of a person who lacks a genuine connection with people
1: And Jeff, do voters out there really feel that way about the bureaucracy, that they want to kill the bureaucrats?
2: Well, I think if you're looking at Republican primary voters,
3: first of all, let's not think anybody takes him seriously, that he's going to slit anybody's throat. But but if you're talking about Republican primary voters, what they want to hear is, listen, we've got to shrink the size of government and we've got to hold bureaucrats accountable. And I think that's what that statement really says.
1: Wendy, what's your take on it?
5: No, I gotta agree with what Catherine said. He has DeSantis has a tendency to use aggressive, violent language. Um, it's I think it's excessive. It, it causes him problems. His campaign has done other similar things. The videos that they've put out with some violent imagery in them, um, and uh, it's like I think was it Senator Susan said he's trying to sound tough I think instead it just makes them sound angry and mean.
1: Okay. Well, it's never back down, right? That's part of the part of his slogan. Huh? All right. Well, on Tuesday in Orlando, Vice President Kamala Harris rejected Governor DeSantis's offer to debate the state's new guidelines on teaching African-American history, including a section that says that some enslaved people develop skills which in some instances could be applied for their personal benefit. Harris said the governor is trying to rewrite the ugly parts of U.S. history.
4: And now they attempt to legitimize these unnecessary debates with a proposal that most recently came in of a politically motivated roundtable. Well, I'm here in Florida. And I will tell you, there is no roundtable, no lecture, no invitation we will accept to debate an undeniable fact. There were no redeeming qualities of slavery.
1: According to the investigative website Popular Information, the main people who develop Florida's black history standards are themselves controversial and have a partisan ideology. One member had a previous charge of kidnapping a 14-year-old girl. Another was not a scholar but did have a history as a Republican Party activist. When it came to the claim that blacks benefited from slavery, the two members came up with a list that included several who did not gain skills while enslaved. Among the examples were Lewis Latimer, who helped develop the telephone and the incandescent light bulb, but he was never enslaved. Another supposed example was the great inventor, Booker T. Washington, who was held in slavery until the age of nine. He emerged illiterate from captivity and developed his skills only after he was free. David, uh, the governor has uh, seen some opposition uh, from within his own party on this issue. Uh, especially black republicans have spoken out. Why do you think the governor's not backing down?
2: Um, I'll, I'll start here. I think one of the great things about the conversation that's happening now is that it's reminding us all that history is political. And there's no such thing as just objective facts that you write down that tell us the truth about the past. The purpose of history as a historian is not just to learn about the past but the ways that we write about the past teach us about who we are in the present. So the ways that these commissioners have created these benchmarks and clarifications and the governor's defense of them is revealing something about where we are right now. And where we are right now is a place where we don't wanna acknowledge not just the the depravity of slavery but that it has these ongoing consequences that we are still dealing with slavery's afterlives, and we want to avoid those questions because in order to be good people we would have to address racism which is something that the governor doesn't want to do and that's why I think he's not backing down it is an attempt to to rewrite the past in order to create a different vision of the present where we don't have to address the inequality that we all see before us every day
0: you? And, and this idea that people don't want to be made to feel uncomfortable about the truth of history is just ridiculous how do you that's the, the purpose for history like the professor says is to tell us a little bit about who we are today and where we're headed in the future how do you tell the story of the German uprising on the Louisiana shores where 90 slaves were beheaded and their heads placed on poles along the roadway as a deterrent to those yearning to be free how do you tell that without making someone feel uncomfortable either as an african-american or as a caucasian you know, history is to make us feel uncomfortable hopefully for a greater good mm-hmm. Jeff
3: what do you think well I think listen uh... you know anyone who describes slavery as anything but a scourge upon america and upon our history but it's also a lesson that we can learn from and move forward on is something that to me is something that the state needs to, to go back and, and you know, revise its revisions. Um, I think that this is part of a conversation. I think it's important conversation. And I think um, you know, we're gonna have a lot of different views as we, as we move forward here.
1: Catherine, the NBA uh, Players Association uh, is complaining this week that uh, the Orlando Magic uh, basketball team made a significant contribution to a pro-DeSantis super PAC, and uh, they say, you know, this doesn't speak for those of us who help uh, create the uh, the sport, uh, and they, they're they're pretty angry. The NBA Players Association is pretty angry at what the uh, at, at the uh, donation given by the magic to uh, Governor DeSantis's pack.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think that kind of underscores some of the uh, some of the fallout from taking stances like this, and uh, and the governor's you know move to. Uh, to uh, eradicate diversity equity and inclusion programs for example or the you know commonly known don't say gay law and of course the latest being the the black history standards um you know there's a lot of, of pushback that's come up I mean two uh, two professional black organizations also moved their uh, conferences from Orlando citing the hostile environment uh, toward African Americans that uh, uh, the Desantis administration has created, so I think it just it underscores kind of you know the impact this is this is having not just in Florida but but around the country now, which is now DeSantis' playing field.
1: And, and, and Wendy, the the uh, uh, the decisions to make these new standards, uh, it's a 200-page document. Not all of it is controversial. I think uh, many many people, on, especially African Americans, would say some of this content is good. But why does the governor not? Uh, say you know we've made a few mistakes. Let's go back and revisit it.
5: Never back down. Um, yeah. That's his that's his motto, and that's what he does. He's he is absolutely not going to be seen as conceding that Democrats like Kamala Harris have a legitimate point. He, he simply can't accept that. Um, if you read these standards, I've read them and the effect of my reading them was to make me wish I knew a lot more about African-American history and particularly the history of slavery. The section just on African-American history is about 19 pages and most of the attention has been drawn to these two sentences, one that slaves used skills they learned in slavery for later benefit and the other that there was violence by and against African-Americans that second sentence is simply not explained. It, there's, there's no indication of what they're talking about. On the first sentence that these, that these people acquired skills for their benefit, there's no perspective given there. I mean, it probably did happen to a tiny handful of people out of the millions, if you follow what I'm saying. And there's no perspective, no, no indication of the significance of this given in those standards. Like I said, it makes me wish I knew more about the hundreds of individuals and incidents that are mentioned in these standards.
2: Okay. And just to add one more point to this, I think that there is a, a substantial opportunity here for educators. A lot of educators are feeling very pressured right now. But for someone like me, when I see these laws in place, uh, and when I see these benchmarks and clarifications, what I've done is I've brought them into the classroom. So this is a part of African American history. The conversation around this legislation and around these benchmarks is a part of an ongoing story. And what educators can do is really teach students how to think about how education works, what accepted knowledge looks like, and then to ask the kinds of questions that we would want them to ask as young historians or other scholars in training. Uh, History
1: doesn't stop, it's very dynamic. Mm -hmm. All right, well, the Republican majority on the Hillsborough County Commission is taking steps towards a new districting plan that could give them a long-term advantage commission races. The idea is to switch from a mix of countywide and single-member districts to a commission consisting solely of nine single-member districts. Democrats fear that the current Republican majority will gerrymander the districts. Under the proposal by Commissioner Mike Owen, a referendum on the plan, would be held on March 19th next year, the day of the 2024 presidential primary, an election
5: likely to draw a large Republican turnout. And Wendy, what's the status of this proposal? Well, the status of the proposal is that the county staff is supposed to report back to the county commissioners on the 16th, August 16th, as to what kind of, whether this is feasible, what kind of plan could be put together and what it might look like. Uh, the commissioners will then decide whether to put it on, uh, on a referendum ballot for the county to vote on. Um, the Republicans who are pushing this idea, and it's been pushed for years before uh, and rejected repeatedly by county charter review commissions, they're saying that the county is simply too big for, for three at-large commissioners, county-wide commissioners, and four district commissioners to represent. Hillsborough County is the same size as two congressional districts. THAT'S JUST TOO BIG. DEMOCRATS RESPOND THAT THIS IS NOTHING BUT A NAKED REPUBLICAN POWER GRAB. THE, um, the COMMISSIONERS, THE REPUBLICAN MAJORITY, uh, WITH ONE DEMOCRATIC COMMISSIONER VOTING ALONG WITH THEM, GWEN MYERS, VOTED TO CONSIDER WHETHER TO PUT THIS ON THIS REFERENDUM ON THE BALLOT ON THE PRESIDENTIAL PRIMARY DAY. WELL, WHO'S GOING TO VOTE IN THIS YEAR'S PRESIDENTIAL PRIMARY? REPUBLICANS WHO HAVE A HOT PRIMARY CONTEST. Democrats will have very little reason to go to the polls, no party voters will have almost no reason to go to the polls. Um, Democrats also say that that the Republicans are trying to rush this into effect so that they can draw new districts in time for the 2024 county commission election and that those districts are certain to be gerrymandered. Uh, to benefit the Republican candidates. And the issue comes up before the county commission in a few weeks. Right. right.
1: Well, before we go, what other news story should we be paying attention to? And William, let's start with you one one more time. The other big story of the week.
5: Well, I'm going to go with uh, some local races, local legislative and county and local government races that apparently are being affected by Republican confidence because of the Republican wins, unexpected Republican wins in the 22 red wave election. Those uh, that better than expected Republican performance has inspired a couple of state House candidates uh, in, uh, in Hillsborough to challenge seemingly well established Democrats, Susan Valdez um, and uh, Fentress Driscoll. It's inspired at least one Pinellas Republican to run for a countywide commissioner seat. Uh, and uh, at least one Hillsborough Republican to run for a countywide county commission seat, and I think you're seeing this statewide. The 2022 outcome is is encouraging Republicans to make challenges that they wouldn't normally make.
3: All right, Jeff, your other big story? I think the big story for us is uh, we just started the Florida Policy Project. So after 12 years in the legislature, my big takeaway was everything in Tallahassee is tactical. There isn't a strategy, and so we designed the Florida Policy Project to look at best practices across the country in criminal criminal justice, property insurance, transportation, and housing, and we're excited about launching this new project. And you'll be speaking in St. Petersburg at the
1: Palladium in just a few weeks? I will be. All right. Uh, Darrell, your other big story? I think
0: we're watching Jim Large, the fire chief in the city of St. Petersburg, and the mayor to see what happens with the assessment survey that they did with employee satisfaction. Uh, the fact that uh, the fire department only has five African-Americans out of the 78 top officers and has failed to integrate uh, according to what people feel should be fair and uh, I think we should watch what happens with that.
2: All right, David, your other big story. Uh, I think a huge story right now is not super sensational, but it's uh, rural hospital closures all across the country. Uh, Since 2005, we've seen a huge number of those closures. We're looking at the possibility of 30% of rural hospitals closing. Florida's number two on that list. I think we need to be paying attention to what's happening in healthcare for all of our communities. All right, Catherine, your other big story.
4: Yeah, I think there's still a lot of fallout from the gender-affirming care restrictions that were instated by the legislature and the Florida Board of Medicine. And the Tampa Bay Times just put out a a very in-depth story uh, looking into the Medicaid coverage ban on gender-affirming care for transgender Medicaid recipients and found that Florida paid thousands of dollars to consultants with pre-existing anti-trans views. uh, And some of those consultants also support conversion therapy. And that uh, Jason Wita, who's now the ACA secretary, tried to recruit Floridians who uh, regretted their transitions to speak against gender-affirming care, and uh, so I think that that's a really big story that we should all really be paying attention to: is how these uh, these these laws came to be uh, based on on uh, experts with with preexisting biases. Hey, thank you all
1: for taking part in this week's show. Thanks for informing us. Great to see you. And thank you for joining us. Send us your comments at FTW at WEDU.org and like us on Facebook. You can view this and past shows online at WEDU.org or on the PBS app. Florida This Week is now available as a podcast. From all of us here at WEDU, have a great weekend.
3: Florida This Week is a production of WEDU,
0: who is solely responsible for its content.